Welcome to the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair's week of podcasts and performances featuring local, national, and international activists and authors. The Book Fair Collective and From Embers have teamed up this year to release presentations over our podcast platform that can't be held in person due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Recordings of these voices of resistance were conducted on unceded Indigenous territories across so-called British Columbia and beyond. For more information about the book fair and a full schedule of online events, you can check out victoriaanarchistbookfair.ca. Listeners in the Victoria region are encouraged to visit Camus Books at camus.ca for anarchist publications and more. Thanks for listening. The Victoria Anarchist Book Fair Collective would like to acknowledge the interview you are about to hear with Kathy Ferguson took place simultaneously on unceded Lekwungen territory in so-called Victoria, BC, and on Indigenous lands whose original people are today identified as Native Hawaiians. Thank you all for attending this special podcast featuring an interview with Kathy Ferguson, author, political philosopher, feminist, historian, and anarchist. My name is Kimberly Croswell, and I am privileged to have this opportunity to ask Kathy about her research and views on anarchism. Kathy's interests are varied, spanning topics that include feminism, gender, militarism, race, globalization, and history. I am not exaggerating when I say Kathy's book, Emma Goldman, Political Thinking in the Streets, is the best biography on Goldman to date. It combines history with critical theory to not simply paint a picture of Goldman, but also of the anarchist movement and society as a whole during her time. Kathy, I know that most of today's conversation is going to be about the 800 women you identify as important contributors to anarcho-feminism during Emma Goldman's lifetime. But first, I'd like to start with a more personal question. How do you define anarcho-feminism and what brought you to it in your own life and research? Thanks for that question, Kim, and thanks very much for having me uh, on this uh, program. And I I really appreciate the chance to talk about this book. Um, How do I define it? Well, okay, I would say that roughly there's these sort of two families of ideas that are associated with anarchism and associated with feminism. And they've always had some overlap, but um, in general, the, and, and, they've, and they've always shared the idea that hierarchy is a problem, that any kind of vertical uh, organization of power and status is uh, unnecessary, harmful, um, and should be, uh, that, that those things should be done horizontally. So they, they've always had, it seems to me, to some degree, at least they've had that in common. Although again, you've got families of ideas. And so there's lots of differences within the two arenas. Um, and what I see feminist energy doing is making sure that anarchism turns toward an understanding of gender, race, and sexuality as vectors of power, that those things made an appearance in anarchism, but that feminism has kind of pushed them more forward. And uh, and also the sort of put the connection, the personal is political, the idea of anarchism as, as lived. Um, and then the anarchist energy has pushed feminism toward recognizing the state um, 
and of, of course also capitalism and colonialism, but especially the state itself as a vector of power, uh, so that it um, it uh, it's not a solution to problems, but it's part of your problem. And so it seems like that those two things, they go together really well, but they haven't always matched up. And so they each put some pressure on the other one to uh, make a bigger horizon of, of analysis. That's how I see it. Um, and in my own life, well, um, I went to college in 1968, and that was a very good time to be in college. The anti-war movement, civil rights movement, the second wave of the feminist movement, and the environmental movement were all happening. And I was, I found that I love political theory in one of those sort of accidental, you take a class and you can't get enough of it moments of life. And um, I was looking around for tools that would help me think about the radical politics that was going on all around me. And um, that sort of, question carried into grad school and in my graduate education well undergrad and grad combined I had come across and 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 read uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Emma Goldman, Rosa Luxemburg, Hannah Arendt and Hannah Pitkin and I literally I couldn't find any more women where are the rest of the women I and I didn't even know that was my question I mean it was a long time ago and I all I knew was that there weren't very many women that were in many of my classes that were writing political theory. Um, and so I pursued all of them. And um, I think with Goldman, it had the added benefit of being a bit more beyond the pale even than the rest of them were. Uh, so it was a bit of a rebellion in and of itself to, to you know, be the grad student who insisted on reading an anarchist. Uh, so, you know, there was a little bit of that involved. But they helped me answer my questions, and I just kept reading them. Great. Well, thank you. Um, so the only question today that I have about Emma Goldman, because this is something that I've always been curious about, is um, what do you make of how Emma Goldman's feminism has been promoted over her anarchism over the years? And what implications does this have for anarchist history? That is a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. And it's, it's one of my major concerns in studying Goldman. Um, and it, it happens all the time that people write books about Goldman as a, a free thinker, as a civil libertarian, as a feminist, as an educator. That's another one. Um, and she was all those things, an anti-war activist. She was all those things, but they were all anchored in her anarchism. And, um, I like there's there are uh, books that claim that Goldman wasn't a feminist because she was an anarchist or um, who or who or that back any that don't put them together background the anarchism and foreground the feminism and what it seems to me is that what's happening there is if you read her primarily as a free speech or education or anti-war or feminist as primarily that, then she becomes this exceptional, even eccentric individual. And the movement drops out of sight. Um, she's, she's the free spirit. She's the, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of a revolution, misquoted person. And, and it seemed to me the more I studied her, that the more I saw that 
it was the anarchist movement that made it possible for there to be an Emma Goldman. And there was really no, um, no separating them. And that they, and, and the fact that they have been separated is, is a way of showing how radical history gets, gets gutted. It gets undertold. It becomes a few extraordinary people um, instead of a movement. And if it was a few extraordinary people, then you can look up at them or you can look down at them, but you're not going to be like them. They're crazy or, you know, so above you in some kind of monumental fashion that, that, you know, you, you read them with awe or horror possibly, but not with any sense of, yeah, we could all do that. Whereas if you look at a movement of, and you see both its heroic and its prosaic side, and you, you look at that, the, uh, how it was held together, what made it work as a movement, then I think you have a radical history that's much more usable for us today. So rather than just focusing on Emma Goldman, I'm curious to know why it is important for us to know there is this movement of 800 anarchist women active in the first half of the 20th century. Well, I kept coming across, when I was researching Goldman, I kept coming across these two themes, often, or statements, often at the same time. And that is that uh, someone would say, either then or now, it's, it's both historically that this happened and contemporary commentary does this, why aren't there more Emma Goldmans, I would say. Oh, it's too bad, that, where are the other women? It's too bad there aren't any more Emma Goldman. You know, I never saw anybody say, why aren't there more Peter Kropotkins? Even though Kropotkin was a, a unique and powerful figure, but everybody knew there were lots of men. And so even though Kropotkin stood out, he, he wasn't the only model of what an anarchist man looked like. And um, so, so you get this lament, why aren't there more in the Goldman's? It's too bad there aren't any women. And then you get lots of women and often in the very same publication where usually a man has just lamented their absence, there's these other women. So I'd be reading, you know, Benjamin Tucker, even his, his, he had many more men than women, but in his journal Liberty, but still there were women. Certainly there were lots of women writing in mother earth. That was Emma Goldman's journal, free society, the journal that started off in San Francisco and then moved to Chicago. Lots and lots of interesting women. When you go back and dig into these into the journals, you find the women. And in a sense, that's where you also find the movement. The anarchist movement organized around its publications. Um, there's a kind of a, of a uh, I don't know if you want to say a joke, but an observation that people who do this historical work share, which is that when a new socialist comes to town, they subscribe to the socialist journal. So the masses or appeal to reason had a hundred thousand or more subscription. When a new anarchist comes to town, they start their own journal and they also subscribe to all the other journals. And so the, um, the number of small journals is remarkable. And you see so many women in the pages of these publications, they write for them. Like Lizzie Holmes was a, a fabulous writer for, among other journals, Free Society. They edit them. Charlotte Wilson was um, uh, the co-editor of the London journal Freedom, although Kropotkin is usually credited with it, but, but Wilson was his co-editor. 
Um, so they write, they, they print the journals. Lillian Harmon printed Lucifer the Lightbearer. Uh, Georgia Replogel printed Egoism. Um, so they edit, they write, they print. They, of course, distribute. They um, um, collect. They, they archive. Um, and then when you look at the back page of these journals, which is where the chatting happens, where letters to the editor are either published or summarized, and the different smaller groups will write in to say what they did that month. That's where you find this endearing train of, or trail of the, the women organizing the monthly picnic or the monthly hike or uh, somebody organizing a, literally a rummage sale to raise money to pay for some event that the anarchists wanted to do. Um, it's where the dances and the discussion groups and the teas and uh, you know, all manner of activity, the, the picnics, anarchists were often referred to as a picnic culture, um, a lot of picnics. And uh, so I started seeing all these women and it just seemed so odd at the very same time, I'd read somebody who said, where are the women? I'd see the women. It's like, can't, they're right here. How can you not see them? They're right here. And so I started keeping lists. And once my list got to several hundred, I realized, okay, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this, but I have to do something because it, when you get past the people who are stars in some way, because they wrote something that stayed in print, that's what has, that's what most people know about anarchism. They know about the material that either stayed in print or somehow came back into print uh, after some years out of print. That's what, Goldman's work. That's what happened to her work or Berkman. Um, so you get past that and you look for the people whose writing never got collected um, or who didn't write. They were orators or they were editors or they were printers or they were organizers and they weren't writers. Then you see lots and lots of women and you also get to a sense of what the glue was that connected those all the bits to each other. Uh, in all that sort of dense network, that forest of women making connections. So how did you decide on the number 800? And uh, what scope are you using to identify the women on the scene? So for example, how personally connected or not are some of the women to Emma Goldman herself? Okay, well, I think I'm actually up to a thousand now, so I'm going to have to change my number. Um, but I, I haven't counted them lately because I, the the boundary of who's in and who's out changes. Uh, I don't know, depending on my mood, probably. But um, there's several groups. So I have there's women who are clearly part of the anarchist movement. Um, that's how they identified themselves. That's, uh, you know, where their writing or, or speeches or whatever it was they did appeared clearly in that movement. Goldman likely knew them personally, um, no matter where they were in the world. Anarchists all knew each other. It was, it was <laughs> I just couldn't believe it when I finally figured this out. I think it was Virginia Woolf who once said, when you meet one radical, you meet all the radicals. And uh, it's definitely the case for the anarchists. She knew most of them personally. Um, they were exceptionally prolific correspondents. Uh, Goldman's often seen as, as 
sort of unusual or you could just say weird because she wrote so many letters. Uh, her biographers, Richard and uh, Anna Drennan, say they estimate 200,000 letters in her life. Uh, but a lot of the anarchists did that. When you spend time in these archives, you'll see 30 or 40 years of correspondence just tirelessly back and forth and back and forth. And so there was a, a, a strong connection in terms of, of written correspondence. They also read each other's journals. Every journal would list at the back the journals that it received. And often it would be 10, 20, 30 other publications that were sent to that journal. So every journal had a little library. Um, and so people could go to the office in addition to coffee and conversation and figuring out what's happening in your location, you could find out what was happening in Buenos Aires or Minx or wherever the, the people sent their journals from. So, so that's like the first group. That's the people close, the women closest to Goldman um, in, a, in a way that's identifiably an activist role. Then there's what I think of as a, a penumbral group of fellow travelers. They were politically active. Um, often they more clearly identified as a socialist um, or a trade unionist or a free speech or even a suffrage activist, but they worked with Goldman and they worked with the anarchists. So for example, Jessie Ashley was one of those. She was a birth control activist. She was one of what they called the radical rich. Um, so she, she made a lot of contributions to, um, you know, financial contributions, but she was also tireless as a, uh, she was a lawyer. She represented striking workers. She worked with the birth control league, the no conscription league. They, she was good friends with Goldman. So I would see Jesse Ashley as somebody that I definitely want in there because she was a, a fellow traveler. Um, Alice Stone Blackwell, the same crystal Eastman, the same, they were, they're, um, well-known um, and not well-known as anarchists, but it turned out they were the anarchist-friendly side of suffrage or socialism or unions. Uh, so that's my second group, that penumbra. Then there's the third that I think of as the nearly lost. And these are the women that are mentioned once or twice in publications or in correspondence. Um, um, they... Uh, maybe where I, the only place I may have found their name was in a, um, the list of who subscribed to an anarchist journal. I have the subscription list of Mother Earth, Emma Goldman's journal, because when the FBI uh, stole all of uh, Goldman's uh, material when they arrested her in Berkman uh, for um, their anti-war activity, um, the FBI helpfully retyped the entire list and so there's like six a list of six thousand subscribers and so i found all i found a lot of women and sometimes i found them nowhere else and i i know i'm taking a chance with them because you know who knows maybe they were maybe it was their comic relief that they read an anarchist journal maybe they were an fbi front that's possible that that i um included some people that really oughtn't to be there just on the basis of subscribing to something or writing one time to an anarchist journal with a, you know, a letter of some kind. But I think it's, 
I think it's more important. I'd rather take the chance of including people who don't be there because this is kind of, these women have been credited with nothing uh, politically. And I think that seeing the network of subscribers and readers and contributors and seeing that, you know, they could be in nowhere, Kansas. Um, and this was a lifeline to them. This was what, um, this was what mediated their alienation or their loneliness. Cause often that's what their letters would say. I'm, I'm stuck here in nowhere, Kansas. And you know, this is, you know, once a month I get to read what you send me and it's great. So um, I like the, the nearly lost group. I'm very fond of them. And I, it makes me so happy when I get an email from somebody who says, I saw my aunt Bertha on your website. I didn't know aunt Bertha was an anarchist. What can you tell me about aunt Bertha? And often I know more about aunt Bertha than they do because it was their grandma's sister and she was the black sheep and nobody talked about her or just, it was a family thing and families, you know, they, they tell certain stories over and over, but they don't necessarily have a very big picture of what, uh, what their members do. So um, I, that's been, that's always really fun to get one of those emails and get a whole new, people will send me photographs or they'll send little stories. And it's wonderful. So that's fun. And then the last group, so we've got the anarchist given, we've got the penumbral radicals, we've got the nearly lost, and then the famous elsewhere. That's my fourth group, the famous elsewhere group. And they had some connection to Goldman or to anarchism. Um, for example, Edna St. Vincent Millay, the famous poet, she was a friend of Goldman's. She uh, was arrested for um, protesting the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. Um, she wasn't primarily an anarchist. Um, Alice Paul is another one. She was a militant suffrage leader, but she was a, also a Mother Earth subscriber. And so I include them because I want to show that during the time I'm looking, I'm looking at, which is essentially the Paris Commune to the Spanish Revolution, about 1870 to around 1940, little before, that in that period of time, which was Goldman's lifetime, many, many other progressive or liberal or forward-thinking people saw anarchists as allies. They didn't see them as crazy people. They, they didn't look at them as the bizarre, off-the-charts, extreme people. They did not, under any circumstances, confuse them with fascists. They, that, which, and all those things happen today, that, anarchists are, that, that Antifa is linked into fascism, as though, as though if you're critical of liberalism, it doesn't matter how you're critical of liberalism as though the, the, rep, the left and the right are the same because neither of them are the center. And that's just stupid politically. That's, that's, that's inattentive to content. So I like seeing how the anarchist movement of the time, the anarchists were seen as good, um, sort of good coalition partners. That even if you weren't an anarchist, if you were a trade union activist, then you could work together on a strike or you were a, a, a birth control activist, you could work together on some kind of birth control action, that they, they did a lot with others. So that my fourth group of the famous elsewhere is to, get, is to show that, that link. 
So um, are there any particular women? You've already mentioned a few, but do, do you want to tell a few stories of uh, specific women? <laughs> I do. It's so nice you asked me that. Um, I, it's so fun to collect these stories. Um, and I'll just take one little group out of this network of networks and all these interesting people, one little group, and that is the three women whose names are wonderfully Agnes, Bertha, and Pearl. And I just think that's the best sort of late 19th century anarchist name you can find, right? So Agnes Inglis is the the center. She's the hub of this crowd. Um, Born in 1872, that's three years after Goldman. um, Died in 1952. Um, And she... um, was active in the movement uh, in many different ways. She was in the IWW, so she did a lot of labor organizing. Uh, She worked at Hull House for a while and the Franklin Street Settlement in Detroit, so kind of saw the um, working class. She was herself from a a middle-class background. Um, She saw working-class misery, and she saw that she thought the settlement movement, while well-motivated, wasn't really what the workers needed so she started she became active in in anarchism she organized goldman's talks at the university of michigan when you think about somebody like goldman who spent basically 40 years six months out of no 20 years six months out of each of those 20 years traveling the country giving talks um, maybe ten thousand talks in her lifetime and she wasn't the only one voltering declare also gave a lot of talks. Alexander Berkman gave a lot, not as many as Goldman, but still, they uh, many anarchist speakers traveled around. Well, how did that happen? How did I mean? You know how much work it is to make a talk happen. How, you, somebody had to rent the hall. Somebody had to do the publicity. Uh, somebody had to, uh, you know, had to circulate the publicity. Somebody had to pick Goldman up at the train station. They, she had to stay somewhere. She had to be fed. Um, it's a, it's a lot of work to organize these talks. And the local anarchists would mostly do that. Sometimes Goldman would do some of it. And her she had a, when she had a manager, Ben Reitman, he did a lot of it. He was good at his job. That was, was not good at a lot of other things, but he was very good at his job as manager. And um, so there's, 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 important activism happening in those crevices and those those small sites where the infrastructure of a cross-country lecture tour is put together over and over year after year for two decades so i uh agnes did that she organized goldman's not for two decades but for many of the years that Goldman came to Detroit and Ann Arbor, she organized her talks. So she had all this background. And then her friend, Joe Lobbity, who was a printer, an anarchist printer, contributed his library. Printers tended to also be collectors because first of all, they collect their own stuff that they printed, but then other printers would send their fellow printers the stuff that they printed. So printers tended to have a lot of material and and there were a lot of printers and so Joe Lobbity um, uh, donated his collection to the University of Michigan and like 10 years later he says to his friend Agnes Agnes would you check on my 
collection and see what happened to it. And so Agnes goes into the University of Michigan Library, and there's Joe's collection, still in boxes, nicely, all safe, locked up in a carrel somewhere, but nobody's done anything with it. And Agnes just says, well, let's see about that. And she just takes the thing over. And she wasn't hired. She didn't have a job. She just took it over. And I guess you could say she volunteered, except I'm not even sure it was that formal. I think she just wouldn't leave. And she'd, she'd borrow a desk from over here and, and a, you know, a typewriter from over there and a chair from over here. And she'd set up herself up in a little you know, stuffy corner with no window where she was out of the way. And she just went through the collection. And, you know, one item at a time. And she wasn't a trained librarian, so she made up a system of organizing the stuff with an eye toward how will students be able to find it. And uh, then she and Joe wrote a letter to about 400 radicals of, of their uh, this time. This would have been in the late 20s, early 30s, and said, got anything to donate we're making a collection and donations started coming in and then the word spread and they kept coming and coming in she doubled, she increased probably by 20 times the initial collection that Lobbity had given the library and I, I just love reading these stories where she you know somebody writes her to her and says Agnes my you know Aunt Nellie died and there's this trunk in the attic and it's full of anarchist stuff what are we going to do with it so Agnes gets on a bus and she goes to wherever Aunt Nellie died and she gets the trunk and she looks at it and she takes it all back with her and it becomes part of the collection. And the radicals trusted her. She was one of them. So um, they didn't have to ask themselves, should I donate Aunt Nellie's material to a state institution, the University of Michigan? They They gave it to Agnes. And so she she used her, she sort of had that combination of radical, a radical heart and a bourgeois education and, and some sort of the class credentials that go with being raised in a, a slightly more um, comfortable, at least, um, family. And she just put this incredible collection. The Lobbity collection is probably the best collection of, of radical material in the country it's probably as good or it's at least in the in the league with the international institute for social history in amsterdam and the wagner collection at nyu and the iww collection at wayne state and the m goldman papers um it's it's a very special place and i just love that that she just went in and did it for 30 years did i mention that she did this for 30 years <laughs> and, and there were a couple years in there where the librarian in charge kind of noticed her and like said well who is this and so he put her on the payroll because he liked what she was doing so for two years she got a salary and, <laughs> and then he was probably replaced something happened and her salary stopped but it didn't occur to her that she should stop she just kept doing it and i i really Part of what I'm trying to do is to say that's not just recording the anarchist movement. That is anarchism. What she was doing, that is part of anarchism. And then these other two women, Bertha Johnson and Pearl Johnson, they were sisters. Bertha was a, a doctor, actually, who was a, had 
uh, was a farmer um, somewhere on the East Coast. I'm going to guess Pennsylvania somewhere. And her sister, Pearl, who was the partner of Benjamin Tucker, the famous individualist anarchist who edited the journal Liberty. And Pearl and Bertha and Agnes had this long, long correspondence where they were always collecting and sending material to the lobby. And so a lot of their letters were um, my neighbor, Belle, who was a kind of a crazy lady who lived next door to Bertha, but she had a bunch of anarchist literature in her attic. And so I found this in Belle's collection and she says, we can have it. Would you like to have it? And these were people who had no money at all, but some, but they would have, they would scrape together the, the stamps essentially. In fact, when you wanted to give an anarchist a present, you gave them stamps. There were often people who couldn't afford to pay for their subscription to a journal. They would send a stamp. And it touches my heart so to see the, the sort of earnest attention to, to collecting and saving and consolidating this material. Um, and, and Agnes has this lovely uh, letter that she wrote to someone where she says, I'm doing all this for the scholar who will be coming. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so the last question I have for you is, um, I, I have to say that the subtitle for your book on Emma Goldman, Political Thinking in the Streets, is extremely thought-provoking. What would you say constitutes political thinking in today's streets? Well, you know, we're pretty lucky that our streets are sort of amazingly active, especially given a global pandemic. Um, So, of course, Black Lives Matter um, and um, Say Her Name and uh, organizing around police violence, which has spilled over to many other elements. Um, That's activism in the streets. Uh, When the folks in Seattle claim a space. They, this park is our park now. This, these city blocks are our city blocks. We're going to show that it is possible for a community to organize itself without police. And they do it. Um, that sort of that prefigurative strategy of showing that another world is possible by acting as though it's already here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I think we're lucky to see a lot of that. I also think that a lot of indigenous Politics today are creating great streets, in quotes, great public space. Uh, The uh, Hawaiian protesters at Mauna Kea who are um, protecting the mountain against the, um, basically against the university and the state. Um, The Standing Rock protesters about, uh, with the pipeline. Um, Those are good streets. Uh, I learn a lot from learning and and i have to say anarchist book fairs are part of the streets i love (laughs) that anarchists have book fairs there aren't that many movements that have book fairs in fact i can only think of one and it's us so i i just love that anarchist book fairs happen and they happen over and over for decades and decades uh you know one of the historians of the time referred to anarchists as bookish poor people Mm. And I've always, that's always stuck in my mind as a, a great grounding for a political movement, bookish poor people. Wonderful. 
Um, so a surprise question. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Does, does something come to your mind uh, through this conversation or anything that you'd like to just leave us your final thoughts with? Yeah, I, I'll leave us a kind of a, a questions thing that's on my mind a lot because of the uh, so much of political organizing, even before the pandemic, was online, had become online, and now it's almost entirely online for public health reasons. And I, of course, don't oppose that. I think you, know, you have to do what you can do with what you've got. But when I look at the anarchist movement, it seems to me that one of the great sources of its energy and its indefatigability, just, you know, it just, you know, these people are always getting arrested and deported and beaten up and killed and, um, and they just never gave up. And how, and, and often that's talked about in psychological terms as well, they were fanatics or, um, you know, they were extremists or they were, it was an ideological devotion. And I'm sure there's plenty of ideological devotion. But I think one of the keys was in the making of their publications, the making of their journals and their pamphlets um, and, and their books to some extent, but they didn't make nearly as many books as they made journals and pamphlets because books cost more. Um, that, and, and if that's right, if it's, if it's the case that the actual physicality of the print shop and the smell and the feel and uh, the texture of setting type and being the, doing the press work and doing the binding and distributing the thing and then coming back again the next week and doing it again and then doing it again and then doing it again, that, that that's a kind of political glue and it's a kind of political energy. It, it's, um, it, it's creative. It's not that anarchism happens and then the journals write about it. The writing about it is anarchism. The creating of the journal, that's an anarchist act. And if that's true, um, that, that the printers, the printing, the presses were, in a sense, actants in the anarchist arena, then... I think that raises the question of, is there a substitute for that digitally? Is it, it, you know, I think about like puppet making workshops. I think about anarchist theater, because uh, journals aren't the only thing anarchists make, right? They make other things. And what if you have to have that? What if a screen, no matter how lively the ideas are, isn't enough then you know we need to rethink how we're doing things i remember one of the uh, i don't know more activists said um looking back on their movement um she says i'm not sure if we created a movement or a brand and i thought that was so insightful and it doesn't you know at all say anything you underestimate the, the importance of what they did but we really don't want a brand I say I would agree, considering the increasing uh, tone of censorship that is emerging over the digital space these days. So uh, perhaps thinking about uh, physicality of book production and actually sharing what we make with each other in paper format, it could be another institution building that 
we can never let go of in, in, in an era of censorship. Yeah, I, that's, I, I don't want to, I mean, I'm old, right? And, and so maybe young people have a more active digital uh, life than I have. Maybe I'm just overlooking and I'm open to being convinced that, that I'm wrong. But when I look at what these folks did from the Paris Commune to the Spanish Revolution, their publications and the process of making them, not just writing them, but physically making them and putting them out there and sharing them and then doing it again was, they couldn't have been who they were without that. Amazing. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, I really appreciate your insights today. And I'm going to be adding the link to the full 1,000 anarchist <laughs> women compiled by you in the show description. So be looking for that. So many thanks. It's probably not all there yet. And I found some typos today, so I'm very embarrassed about that. But I'll get fixed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the perfectionist. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Kathy. And uh, we'll see you on the if not on the interweb, then at least in your physical uh, production of books. I hope so. Thank you, Kim. CFUV broadcasts on 101.9 on the FM frequency, transmitting 2,290 watts from the basement of the Student Union Building at the University of Victoria. If you want to keep up with your favorite program, check out our program schedule online and tune in where you want, when you want. CFUV.ca
101.9 FM in Victoria offers our listeners three types of programming. Music, spoken word, and multicultural. Our multicultural programming is in a third language and features news, events, and music catering to cultural communities in Victoria and beyond. Visit cfuv.ca and click on our program schedule to hear our latest episodes. <laughs> 